to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through verse 80. A lot to read, but let's dive in together. And I want to, before we dive in, I want to point out to you, God seems to like entering in song. God seems to like showing up in song. So, let's read together. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months, and returned to her home. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No! He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called John by this name. And they made signs to his father to inquire, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout, through all the hill country of Judah. Judea, sorry. Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord and prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet 
into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. God enters in song here. God shows up. He inspires the heart. And all of a sudden, the people sing. And they sing and rejoice. I say it's a song. The scripture says they're prophesying or they're just saying. We've, we've traditionally often thought of this as a, a song, a response that is given. The psalmist is also called prophesying or saying, and we take those for granted as songs, because it's what they are, they're songs. When Miriam uh, and Moses cross the Red Sea, the first thing Miriam does is she takes out a tambourine and starts singing a song. Now, if you're really Baptist, the tambourine thing bothers you, let it go, it's all right. So she starts singing a song and dancing, and she leads all the women of Israel in this great song of the Lord. When Moses uh, sees the conquering Lord, he sings, Oh, the Lord, our strength and song, highest praise to Him belong. Oh, the Lord, our conquering King. So he sings these songs, and we see, we see David in response to, to God's movement singing a song. And, and one of the things that we can see is when we recognize God's movement on the earth, song and expression explode from the community of grace. Song and expression explode from the community of of grace. In other words, the birth of creative artistic expression is found in seeing and savoring Christ Jesus. The birth of artistic expression is found in seeing and savoring Christ Jesus. So if you've ever been interested in producing some sort of art or craft or skill or even just brilliant thoughts of the mind that you want to lay out before the Lord, the way to do it is to investigate deeply the character and nature of Christ. And I guarantee something will come out. It may not be art. It may not be poetry. It may not be music. But it will definitely be something. Words, speech, teaching, manuscripts, whatever it is. The basis of creative expression comes from knowing and seeing and savoring Christ Jesus. The power of music and poetic expression is something God seems to rejoice in. Something God seems to rejoice in. Which is why it is sad when the Christian community rejects poetry or music or art. Those things belong to us. Not the world. Not the world. And I could talk about that for hours. But that has little to do with what we are seeing today. So Mary brings forth in song here in verse 46. And we looked at it some last week, so we're going to fly through this one, uh, through Mary's song, to get to Zachariah's song to see both of them today. But we we first uh, want to, to acknowledge, we call this a song because it's poetic. That's why we call it a song. That's why we say it's Mary's song, because it's poetic. That's the only reason 
It's got a poetry, a rhythm to it, and, and so we call it a song. She may have just spoken this. Um, she may have burst it out in song. Who knows? Maybe she took out a tambourine. I mean, that's what Miriam did in the Old Testament, so maybe Mary is doing the same thing. So we see this song, and she comes out with a poetic phrase, uh, praise that is generated when she sees God. And so let's start in verse 49, because that's where she talks about herself there in verses 46 through 48, acknowledging her lowly estate and how God has exalted her from her lowly estate and has blessed her with the good word, as we talked about last week. And now we look at verse 49. So in verse 49 it says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. There's the opening statement. Jesus, God, God the Father has done great things who are that for her, so he's done these great things, and holy is his name. So he is perfect and pure. So let's look at this. First, God is mighty. There's the first point. God is mighty. He's not weak. He's not waning. He's not off to the side. He's not merely strong. He is mighty. So God, he who is mighty, has done, and this is the Greek word dunamis, by the way, like Dynamite, that word, explosive, mighty, strength, powerful. God is mighty, and he says, he has done great things. Now what's crazy about this phrase, he has done great things for me, is that this is past tense. She is acknowledging that, that Jesus has been something that God is going to do and has indeed already started. That he's already done great things for her for Israel, for His people. He's already done great things, and he is. this is a continuation of what God has been doing. So I want you to think about that for a minute. In context of where we are as a world and as a nation, it seems often as though the world is falling to pieces. Often. Uh, my brother recounted that he had to deal with people on both sides of a political debate this week who were crying at different points during the week, weeping because they were in fear, legitimate fear, over the nation, one way or the other. He had to deal with people first who were weeping because it looked like one candidate was going to win. And then when it shifted, he had to deal with other people who were weeping because it looked like another candidate was going to win. And he had to go back and forth because our election system is bizarre, a reporting anyway. So all of it is, is so weird. And, and he had to deal with both of them. And I thought, this is crazy. I want you to think about Israel just for a minute. They lived through an exile in Babylon. They lived through an exile in Babylon. And when they were in exile, you think they were thinking about what great things God was doing for them? No. They were equally self-absorbed as we are. Weeping over the candidates who were put in office. Weeping over the kings that were ruling, one way or the other. Calling out to the Lord for Him to move, like we do. But equally weeping. Indeed, I imagine that there was a sect of Israel that when Cyrus came to power was like, well, I don't like his personality. I don't care for the way he talks. I don't care for the way he talks. He's, he's a blasphemer. Yeah, he was a pagan king. Of course he's a blasphemer. 
I, I imagine before that, when Assyria was rising to power and Israel was in the land and Assyria is coming, and they're thinking, oh, it's a good thing we've got, we've got Josiah on the throne. If you don't know your Israel history, they lose. And they go into exile with Josiah on the throne. It's a good thing Ahaz is here. Leads them into idolatry. At least Hezekiah. Just all these kings. And, and i, and I got to think Israel was looking at this going, well, what is going on, Lord? And Psalm 10 was probably on their heart all the time. Arise, Lord. Wake up, God. Wake up. Move. Do something. Do something, Lord. That's, it's had to have been on their tongue constantly. So we, we study and we think about Israel, and I just want you to recognize what Mary is saying here. He has done great things for me. He has done them. He has done them. He has moved. He has done great things. Things for me. God has been moving. He is not silent. He is not absent. He has been moving. He has been moving. So she acknowledges that God has been moving and God will accomplish His work and certain purpose. He will accomplish what He has set out to accomplish. So she calls and she says, He has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His name is Holy. The basis for what follows in the song is His holiness of name. It's his holiness of name. That's the basis for what follows in her song. His holiness. So we move on here in verse 50. We see, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. We expect justice from generation to generation. Indeed, the Old Testament actually mentions that there's going to be a curse to the third and fourth generation for those who are sinful and wicked. And he and, and Jesus coming flips that. And instead of curse, the curse is broken. The curse of sin and death is broken. And while we are born into a sinful world and are ourselves sinful... The curse of generation after generation after generation is broken in Jesus Christ in a moment. You believe in Him and that curse is done. It's done. You are no longer beholden to the sins of your fathers and of history. Jesus flips the generational curse in Numbers 14, uh, verse 18, where it says, I will visit to the third and fourth generation. He, he, he flips that. No longer curse, now blessing. And we see it, don't we? When parents are faithful to, to teach their children the Word of God, and we watch as generation after generation shows blessing from the Lord, as, as they repent and believe, as they turn and repent and believe, we watch this very practically play out. In Jesus you do not have to suffer the sins of your Father. If you trust in Christ Jesus, you are free from sin entirely. So repent and believe in Him. 
in verse 51, we see that God will show His strength with His mighty arm, and He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And as His Father, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever, He has shown His strength with His mighty arm. He humbles the proud. Kings fall before God Almighty. All of these rulers that we have in the world today bow before our King and don't even know it. They don't even know that they bow before Him. And yet, they do and they will. The world seems to be falling apart. The world seems to be falling apart. But God is working. He has done great things. And He is working. So why do we not see these things now? This is a question that popped up in my prayer time. Why do we not see these things? Why do we not see the humble uh, exalted and the exalted humbled and the uh, poor sent away full and the rich sent away Empty? Why do we not see this? And I would argue that we do. We do. In the hearts of believers who, who see the world crashing down around them and go, ah, I've got a peace about me that I can't really explain. In the, in the work of our hands where we are striving for righteousness and, and we see minor change, I say we do see these things. When we feed our neighbors and take care of the downtrodden and broken, we do see these things. We see them. The hungry are filled. They are fed. This is the flipped reality that Christians live in, that God reminds us of, that we are His hands and feet on this earth, and we can change the world around us. You understand what that means. It's not that we should change the world around us or that we should try It's that we can. We are capable of changing the world around us simply by living like Christians. I always love when my very, very liberal friend writes me a diatribe about how wicked evangelical Christians are. Because it's not hard for me to go, you think I'm wicked? And he goes, oh, no, 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 you're the exception. And I go, well, I'm an evangelical Christian. No, 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 you're the exception. My friends are the same as me. Well, these, it's wickedness, and they never, there's nothing, they don't solve anything. And I, and I stop him, and I go, okay, listen, this week I have fed the poor, I have taken care. Often he does it providentially on weeks when I have served somebody in an extreme way. I have fed the poor, I've taken care of somebody who was hungry, I have gone to take care of an unwed mother this week, I have done this particular thing. I have been with the Pregnancy Help Center this week. I went to Refuge for Women and spoke with some people there. I have taken care of things. I petitioned my congressman. I have done these various issues this week. What have you done? And he's all of a sudden quiet for five days until he can be mad about something else. Because that's how darkness is. When the light shows up, it runs away. So God remembers 
these things. He remembers these promises He gave us, and He is enacting them, though we cannot see them. And though we are always not privy to what He is doing, God is moving. And we see this here at the end of her song. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Remember the promise to Abraham? You will be My people, I will be your God. The nations will be blessed by your seed. Seed there being a reference to Jesus Christ. The rescue of nations. Your, your, your offspring shall be as numerous as the, skies in the, as the stars in the sky. Be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so he says, so Mary says here, he remembers what he has promised. And just want to remind you, uh, Abraham tore the animals in half and laid them out. And then the, the custom was for you and the person you were making the covenant with to walk through the animals. And what you were saying in making that covenant together was if either of us breaks this covenant, let this happen to the one who broke it. Let this happen to me. If I break this covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be torn in half. Let us be ripped to shreds, both of us, and destroyed. Because we have broken this solemn covenant together. And if you remember, Abraham lays the animals out and he has to bat away the, the, uh, the birds of prey and all the vultures and things. He has to scare them away. And he lays all these animals out and then God causes a trance to come over him and a smoking pot and a, and a torch. So a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire walk through that together without Abraham. Without Abraham. They walk through it together without... Abraham doesn't have to walk through the covenant. You get it? We, we don't have to walk through the dead animals because we don't get torn to pieces. We get all the benefits of the covenant and none of the responsibility. Isn't it incredible? We break the covenant... We destroy the covenant. We, we reject it completely. Humanity as a whole rejects the covenant completely. And what does God do? He tears Himself in half to restore the covenant. How beautiful is that? God remembers what He promised. He remembers what He promised. That those who fear Him, who know the Lord, who trust in Jesus, that those who trust in Christ are redeemed and are His. And no one, no one can take it from you. You know why? Because it's not dependent on you being torn in half. Because it's dependent on the Almighty God tearing Himself in half for your sake. And He did it. He rendered Himself in pieces on the cross that we would have life. Isn't that incredible? And if that's the type of love we are given then isn't that the type of love we ought to give? Isn't that how we ought to be in this world? That we would be torn in half to show love to others? So Zechariah here in this next little portion, verses 57 through 66, confesses the Lord. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but he confesses that John's name would be Grace. And I love the scene, right? You've got this, 
the, all the people are around, and they're like, Elizabeth, you don't get to name the kid. You don't, women don't get to name their children. That's not how this works. I'd just like to say, I only got to input on one kid's name. Like just the same. I have four. One kid I had strong input on, right? The others, I just, I kind of, I, I agreed. They're beautiful names. My wife picked wonderful names, but she picked them. Like, they're, they're her names. She picked them. And so our culture flipped, right? Like, maybe Stephanie would have been the one that was quiet at this point in the story, right? Because this is kind of flipped. But often, nowadays, in our culture, the women pick the names. But back then, it was a big deal. The men picked the names. And you picked family names. And if you were, you know, my kid would have been John. That would have been John the Second, right? Or, um, you know, if I was really arrogant, it would have been Ben John, right? Like, it would have been, he's John's son. I'm not even giving him a real name. He gets to be Ben John, right? Like, that's, that's going to be his name. So, um, the, he, he, he is approached by these men in the story, and they're going, well, Elizabeth doesn't get to name the kid. That's not how this works. Okay, she's saying John. Nobody in your family is named John. That don't make any sense. And Zachariah gets a piece of paper, and I imagine he's going, would you listen to my wife? Like, he's waving his hands, like, listen to her. You know, like, I want to talk already. And, and they come over, and he gets a piece of paper. His name is John. Right? And she... And, and all of a sudden, and she, you know, I imagine Elizabeth is off the side. Yeah, that's right. I told you my name. And, she, and he, suddenly, his name is John, and all of a sudden his tongue is loosed. And if you remember the names, Zechariah, the Lord has promised. Elizabeth, God's promise, right? The Lord remembers, sorry, Zechariah's the Lord remembers, and Elizabeth is God's promise. And John is grace. So, Zechariah, the Lord remembers, writes on a pad, grace is his name. Grace. And at the confession of grace, his tongue is loosed. He sings. At the confession of grace, beauty enters the world. Right? Because without grace, there is no beauty, there is no poetry, there is no song without grace. And yet here, he confesses grace and his tongue is loosed. And he's able to speak and praise and worship. And so he confesses grace. You ever wonder why, when we focus on this world, we can't seem to produce any good songs? You ever wonder why when artwork is produced about this world, it's often garbage. It's often garbage, perverse, or wicked. That's what I mean by garbage, by the way. When artwork is produced about this world and this world alone with no view of heaven or eternity, it's often waste. Or just pointless. In fact, one of my favorite pieces of artwork to tell people about in, in art history, I'm, a, I'm a, an art history nerd as well as a church history nerd, so art history, one of my favorite pieces is there was an artist who took a urinal, turned it upside down, put it on a stand, called it a fountain, and sold it for $10 million. What? Yeah, that's right. What? Yeah. <laughs> he took a urinal, turned it upside down, and was like, fountain, pay me. And people did. That's what's ridiculous. When 
artwork and poetry and music is about this world, it's garbage. But when it has a view towards heaven, it's beautiful. Even an accidental view towards heaven. Even an accidental view towards heaven. It's why uh, Picasso's pictures are beautiful in their own right. Because though he did not have a view of heaven, he had this accidental view of heaven. We call it natural law. He saw some things on the earth that were beautiful because they were to point him to heaven. Van Gogh, same way. He saw some things on the earth that were beautiful because they point us to heaven. You have great artwork that is produced only because it's got the eye of grace on it. When we think about grace in this world, when we think about heaven in this world, beauty explodes. And wonder explodes. And we have great joy. Fear here comes upon his neighbors. Did you see that verse there? His mouth is opened in verse 65. And fear came on all his neighbors. If we grasp grace and confess it openly, we are going to terrify the world. And I mean terrify. When you begin to show grace to your neighbors and mercy to your neighbors and your family, tell me it's not true. They get mad. If they don't believe, they get mad and they get afraid and they stop wanting to hang out. Sometimes you're like, good. I don't. I'm all right with that. Sometimes, sometimes you plead and, and and desire for them and long for them to see the same thing you do. So filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah then bubbles forth in praise. And I say the word bubbles forth because it uses the term prophecy here. And in the Old Testament, the word prophet is the word bubble forth, navi, to bubble forth or to overflow. And it, it's like a, uh, a spring. Uh, if you've ever seen a, a natural spring, how they just kind of like, it's like the earth is just kind of burping, right? That's this idea of the prophets. It's like, out it comes, right? And then it comes out. And that's the idea of prophecy here. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he just kind of explodes. So get this. Here's the narrative, right? Grace becomes confessed in both hand and mouth. He confesses it with his deeds and his mouth. He confesses grace. His name is John. And then he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he just overflows with this song. So we see, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up for us the horn of salvation in the house of His servant David. So let's look at that first. First, the word here for blessed is is a good word. Like we talked about last week, two words used in the New Testament are uh, eulogios and makarios. Right? So you've got these two words. One means happy. The other means a good word. This is a good word. So he, he says, blessed, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God of Israel has spoken a good word here. That's what he's saying. This is a good word from the Lord. He says, he has looked on us. That's what visited is. He has looked on us, or he has literally seen our lives. Think about the Old Testament, right? In Exodus, he has seen our affliction. For 400 years, they cry out, and God saw their affliction. In Israel, with the judges, God saw their affliction and saw them crying out. 
It's interesting that the Bible should use the phrase, saw them crying out. It says he heard their cries and saw their afflictions. Saw them crying. That's what it says. He says he, he saw them, and so God sees their affliction, and then it says, and ransomed them. I like the word ransomed here because it, it, it gets at the point. The point is God paid the price for them to be redeemed. He, he bought them. He, at cost to himself, rent himself in half in Jesus Christ. He sees them and he raises up the horn of salvation. Now, this I find incredibly interesting because the horn of salvation is blown a few times in Scripture. And often it was at battle, right? We've got this image, and you know what that looks like. We've seen it in movies. The guy pulls out the horn, and then the army charges, right? There's a great depiction in, uh, in one of the Lord of the Rings movies. I think it's the two towers where they're on the third day, look to the hill. And they turn and they look, and Gandalf is up there with this huge army, and he's on a horse, and you hear, and then they ride down on the enemy, and they wipe out the bad guys, and it's, everybody's like, yeah! And it's great, right? And it's just wonderful, wonderful scene, powerful imagery. And that's the horn of salvation. They hear this thing blow. But there's another place where the horn is blown. This horn. There's another place where it's blown, and it has nothing to do with the enemies. God is at Mount Sinai, and he has told the people, it is time for you to come and hear my voice. There's no enemy present except the people themselves. They are their own enemy. And they blow the horn, and the people are allowed to approach God. That's, I think that's what Zechariah is getting at here. I think that's what he's getting at here. The horn of salvation. He blows the horn. You can come to me now. So he says... Here's the horn. He raises up this horn in Exodus chapter 19. And the horn is blown and the people are allowed to approach God Almighty as He speaks. Zechariah is, is prophesying here that this, is, this horn has come. And then he says uh, here, in the house of his servant David. So he's going, the horn of salvation has come. We finally have the king who is going to sit on the throne forever and who is going to be our king and we can approach him. The horn is blown. We can approach him. We can come. We can come to him. And then in verse 70 and 72, through 72 it says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember His holy covenant. So He spoke through the prophets of old. So we've got the king there in verse 69. And then we've got the prophets. We've got the prophets. He spoke through the prophets of old that He would preserve the covenant, that He would redeem the covenant of Abraham walking through, uh, of the covenant of Abraham where He walked through, uh, God walked through the animals, and He gave this covenant to the people of Israel, Zechariah is going, he's preserving the covenant that he spoke of through the mouth of his prophets. 
That this thing that he spoke about through the mouth of the prophets who First Peter tells us spoke of things they didn't understand. But we get to see them. How beautiful is that? So you've got the king mentioned in verse uh, 69. You've got the, the prophets there mentioned in verse 70 through 72. And then you've got here in verse uh, 73 and following, it says, The oath that he swore, this is the covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now you've got the priest. Because you are made holy and righteous before God in this child that is born. In this child that is born, you are made holy and righteous before God because He will live a perfect life and die on the cross that you would be redeemed and rescued. He spoke to the prophets and now you have this picture of the priest. So God sends the prophet, priest, and king. The king, prophet, and priest in this order here. Sounds better to say prophet, priest, and king. Rolls a little more off the tongue. Prophet, priest, and king here for you to know him, that you would be able to serve him in righteousness and holiness. Before Christ, you are able to do nothing to save or to redeem or to do anything good. All our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. But with Christ, your hands are redeemed. Your heart is changed. And out of the overflow in your heart, you are able to do good works that He prepared in advance before Him, before you, before, beforehand. That's the word. He prepared in advance beforehand that you might walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. He prepared works for you to do with your hands after you've been redeemed that you would be holy on this earth and serve Him. All of your days. Then we have this beautiful picture of a father here. So Zechariah makes this praise of God. Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king is coming. And then you can just imagine him picking up his son. His son, who he knows is going to be crazy. He knows he's going to be crazy because he knows what he's about to proclaim about him. He knows he's not going to look like the rest of the world. This is a priest in the service of God, a low-level priest in the service of God in a very wicked culture where the, the, the King Herod has set up idol factories everywhere and the priests are just doing their duty and there's a lot of corruption. You've got to imagine the weight of this. As they've got him on this table, he names the kid and he sings this song, and then here, having praised the Lord because he has sent the Messiah, and the Messiah is coming, knowing that the world is going crazy. And Zechariah lives in Judea, in the hillside, in a quiet place that no one cares about. I was told by a friend of mine, uh, about a month and a half ago, just it was one of these moments where he 
was impressed with something I had done, and he, he wanted to encourage me, and he said, the Lord is going to use you in a mighty way, John. And I smiled, and I said, I really like my obscurity. I just, I just said, I really like that if I say something in a pulpit, maybe 30, 40 people see it. I don't get blasted on the news. Stuff I do doesn't go viral. And I looked at him because stuff he does does go viral. And I said, but if you say it, man, the torrent that comes down on you. Zachariah, I imagine, feels a lot more like me. I really like my quiet life in the hill country. And you got to imagine, with that weight, looking at this little baby and going, this baby is about to take on Rome. You think taking on political corruption right now would be hard. Could you imagine having a kid in Brazoria, Texas, taking him to church, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and knowing that your kid is going to grow up to war against the system? Man, the weight of that. So he reaches down with this weight on his soul and picks up the child. And I can't imagine saying this without tears. He picks up the child and goes, And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. I, I pray every night that my kid becomes a missionary. All of them. All four of them. Because I don't care what they want to be. I want them to be missionaries. <coughs> it's my prayer. And, and that, that they would... That they would be missionaries in the world. And, and every night I go in and I go, Lord, make them missionaries for your kingdom. Change, change them, make them powerful missionaries for your kingdom. To make them powerful voice for your name every night. And I recognize that that means I am picking up my child and going, Lord, you take them and do whatever you need to do with them to, to advance your kingdom. I know they're not mine. Though I wish that they would all just grow up and get good jobs and live right next door to me. <laughs> and that they would let me pick their, their husbands and wife. They'd let me, you know, just let me do it. Like, right around. But, I know better. I know that they're the Lord's. Picks up his kid, he's holding his kid. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord and prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Isn't that beautiful? Man, that just floors me. The sunrise will look upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He lifts his child up and recognizes God's sovereign hand. You're going to be this. 
and he recognizes the good, even though he also realizes that means his kid is going to war against the system. He's a priest. He's not a fool. He knows the Word. And he knows what it means to say there's going to be forgiveness of sin and you're going to proclaim that forgiveness of sin. He knows what the Pharisees are going to do. He knows what the Sadducees are going to do. And he raises up the child and surrenders him. I propose that we must do the same thing. We must recognize that the Word of God and living the Christian life is a surrender to the fact that we are not going to look like the world. We are not going to be like the world. And we are going to stand differently. And the world is going to throw rocks at us. And we're going to, like Stephen, look at the sky and go, I see Him! I see Him! As we surrender our lives for the call of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. How beautiful is this song. And may we all sing it. May we all sing this song. The child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. How gracious it was of God to give John years of quiet like his dad. How gracious of it was God to give him years of quiet like his dad. I think he has done that for us as a Christian church in America. And I believe that we will soon be in a time where we are pushing against the system. Where our message is against the system. And we must rejoice because our message being against the system means that the sunrise is going to visit a people in darkness. So we rejoice because God has come and Jesus has saved and we now have the joy of singing. Oh, Christian, sing for the Lord. Sing for He is good. His mercy endures forever and His faithfulness from generation to generation.